Let's get ready to rumble! Hello and welcome back to Scarves Around the Funnel, which we have in the maroon corner, Robbie Nielsen's Just Jam Tarts, and in the blue corner, James 5-1 McPake's Deceitful Dundee. I'm of course getting G'd up for 17th of October when Hearts host Dundee at Tynecastle. Who would have thought that would be the opening game of the season in the championship, Mark Donaldson? Do you know you probably just cost us about 500 quid by saying let's get ready to rumble because Michael Buffer has that copyrighted and any (laughs) usage which he hasn't approved, he can charge for. So please don't call it let's get ready to rumble. Um, Hearts Dundee, who'd have thunk it? Uh, John Nelms, where's his seat when he takes it um, in the first game of the season? Is he even going to get one? Uh, Nelms, you, you can you can be in the car park, son. What a tasty tie. Indeed. Um, so, welcome back to Scarves That in the Funnel. Uh, I am joined by Mark Donaldson, of course. Um, but we're also delighted to be joined by Scottish football writer, founder of Ten Cats, a producer of luxury football merchandise, and author of the upcoming book, Reminiscing with Legends. It's Tony Brown. Hello, how are you guys? Hello. Very good. How are you? Uh, I'm not too bad, thanks. Not too bad. Just sitting in the conservatory with a little glass of red, ready to talk to you guys. Right, okay, let's just stop this right now. You live in Pennycook. I'm from (laughs) Pennycook. The conservatory, that's got to be shared by like 17 folk in Cornbank. Come on now. Don't pretend we're posh. (laughs) My cats live in it, to be fair. There you go. (laughs) So, Tony, you... um... Obviously, many people who listen might have um, read some of your work for the Scotsman. You've been covering football for quite some time. How has how lockdown been for you, though? Because I think all your focus is on what I mentioned there, your upcoming book. Yeah, um, lockdown. I've, to, I know you shouldn't say it because there's so much hardship and what have you for people in all different walks of life and what have you and there's been hardship for myself in a sense in an employment sense but in terms of writing the book it's been absolutely fantastic it's uh, just been a period where I've been able to apart from looking after two young kids it's been a period where I've been able to focus on putting all my energy into this book and it's been absolutely brilliant really enjoyable been really hard days and what have you along the way mentally where yes it's I think I tweeted a few months back it was like running a mat or preparing and running a marathon in terms of all the, the doubts you have in your writing and the mm-hmm. just the, the long journey of going from starting a book to getting to the end point where it's out there for people to read. But no, it's been really good in terms of getting access to people who you're able to talk to people at length for long periods of time when maybe you might not have got them for so long because they're not doing anything, if you like, the, the players, the managers, the people round about. Um, I should say, actually, the book's about hearts. The uh, Scottish Cup win in 1998 and the journey that sort of led to that point. So mm-hmm. I've been speaking to everybody around about it and they've all been absolutely brilliant with their time and given really nice little anecdotes and things like that and just superb little nuggets of information. So in terms of writing a book, it's been the, the sort of circumstances of the past four months have been perfect. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll have a chat to you about... Um you know some of the events around that time and you know hopefully um you can talk to us about you know what has been put together in the book we're not expecting you to reveal too much because obviously you you want people to to buy that book and enjoy the 
I guess, the experience um, of going through it all. So we'll have a chat about that. Um, we're also going to talk about arbitration, uh, which has, I guess, finally uh, come to an end, albeit not in the way that those of a maroon persuasion would have hoped. And I guess we'll see where else it will go in this week's show. So first up, uh, arbitration uh, came to an end. It would, we thought it might have come to an end just before our last show, but it dragged out a little bit longer. And with less than a week left before the Premiership season started, probably no surprise that there wasn't to be any reversing of relegations, but maybe some uh, surprise that there was absolutely nothing in the way of, of compensation awarded. Now, I know, Tony, you've been very busy with your books, so you've we not been focusing on this as it pans out, but as a whole, because everyone's heard myself and Mr Donaldson rant about this at length for many weeks, um, what's your kind of overriding feeling of, of, of what's happened and the end result here? I think it's been an absolute footballing scandal, the way it's been handled. The, the, the outcome is totally unjust. I think that's been sort of epitomised by what's happened down in England with Aston Villa, avoiding relegation and mm-hmm. the teams in the English Championship avoiding relegation from a similar position to what Hearts were in at the time of lockdown and also I mean you only have to look to last season what happened in Scotland I pointed out on Twitter that the three teams who were bottom of the three leagues at the equivalent time last year all got off the bottom by the end of the season the fact a team's been relegated I mean don't get me wrong Hearts have been absolutely shafted but you look at Partick Thistle's situation and that just crystallises how unfair this whole thing has been. I mean, you can't really get a team when they've still got a game in hand and they're only, what, were they two points off the bottom? Yeah. Or two points adrift, rather. I mean, it's it's just completely wrong. And I think even and even the, the most anti-hearts or anti-partic thistle person will acknowledge deep down that <laughs> as much as they're probably reveling in this, it's been totally unjust in terms of the outcome. I, I think hearts and partic and Stranraer are perfectly entitled to feel like they've been absolutely shafted here. Were, were you surprised by the outcome? Because I guess a lot of people, when it went to arbitration, maybe a lot of people of a heart's persuasion had a bit of hope because it was to be put to, I guess, legal representatives. It wasn't people who were involved with football who necessarily were actually tied to, to any of the organisations. So people, I guess maybe let themselves get carried away with what potentially might happen. Were you surprised that the end result has just completely, I guess, backed up effectively what's what the initial decisions were? Personally, no, I wasn't surprised. I expected, not expected, because you don't know how it's going to come. But I mean, to be honest, I didn't hold out much hope when I went to arbitration that it was going to get overturned. I mean, I thought they might have got some compensation or mm-hmm. something like that. But I think Hearts had to challenge it. Partick, obviously with the back in the hearts were able to challenge it it would have been probably negligent by hearts if they hadn't challenged it but I mean I think probably most people thought there's not a great chance of turning this round just because I mean Scottish football there's so much little segments if you like of different people with different looking out for each other and what have you and I just just, my gut feeling was it was never going to get overturned I just I as much as it should have been overturned, I just couldn't see it happen. I mean, Anne Budge obviously put out a kind of personal statement. There was a very generic um, 
not too much info in it. Initial statement from the club as a whole, and then Anne herself put out one which went into a bit more information, and she said, I'll take a segment out of that. Um, what has been allowed to happen to Scot- in Scottish football, where fellow member clubs and our governing bodies have stood back and allowed totally disproportionate financial damage to be imposed on three of its members, can only be described as shameful, as indeed should the SPFL's recent self-congratulatory statement. And that's another thing that I guess has left a very bad taste for a lot of people. And you can you can sort of accept the the ribbing you'll get and the the stick that people get from opposing fans. You know, it's the nature of football. It's the partisan tribalism of football. But I guess there was nothing worse for me than in the aftermath of this coming out, seeing Neil Doncaster looking so pleased with himself and talking so positively about the whole thing. No, totally. I mean, I think the thing that summed it up, I don't know if you guys read Moira Gordon's article in The Scotsman yesterday, I thought that absolutely nailed the situation. I mean, as much as Doncaster will have been probably happy that this was the outcome, he shouldn't have been coming out sort of endorsing himself and saying that this was the right decision, vindication, all that. I mean, it's been a sorry episode. It's been handled terribly. It's ended up with a pretty shabby outcome. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a horrible situation to try and deal with. Whatever they tried to do, there was going to be some sort of hardship for somebody or mm-hmm. somebody would have been pissed off either way, whether it was Hearts, whether it was Dundee United, whether it was Celtic, whether it was Rangers. There was always going to be... Some people were going to suffer in some way, but I think to to just drop three clubs into a lower league on the basis of an uncompleted season is just... I can't understand how that's been allowed to happen. I can see why it's happened, but I just I can't grasp how so many people have allowed it to happen, if you like. Mm. Were you surprised, Mark, when it came out? We were obviously messaging back and forth when the news started to filter out. Did, did you expect... I don't think any of us realistically expected it to be overturned, but I have to say, no. I'd, started, I'd started to, to hope that it, there would be some sort of figure, even if it was not anywhere near what the clubs had quoted. Yeah, I think you have to look at it two ways. One, the way that we perceive it. We perceive it as fans and we think, oh, we should get some sort of compensation. They can't just, not even relegate us. They can't just demote us and Partick. Partick is the hardest hit because they had a game in hand. Um, So there's no way that that should have happened to them. But the way that I think you also have to look at it now, um, the submissions have been made from a legal perspective. And I've said two or three times on, on Scarves Around the Funnel, this podcast, the... Day, the Friday, and the 5pm so-called deadline, um, it, it, it wasn't. And it was, it was mentioned at the time, and, and that's been confirmed by, by those who, who voted. But secondly, um, the, the, the whole vote thing, when it took place, if you voted no, legally you could change your mind to yes. If you voted yes, once you submitted that, you could not vote no. So... In essence, nothing that the SPFL did was illegal, but morally, it just stank from from high heaven. That that's the problem. I guess that's one of the frustrations as well about the fact that we. I mean, you, you never know. Maybe something will come out, but it's all been played behind closed doors, which the SPFL were very keen to to happen. They didn't want this to be played out in open court, and I think we said on the show a little while ago that. Um, part of the reason we thought that Hearts and maybe Park Thistle were very keen for this to happen in court was even if legally 
they're not going to get anything and they won't be any wrongdoing if everyone sees maybe what you know whatever dodgy dealings went on to make this happen and i come on i think we're all pretty sure there's been a lot of people chatting to each other there's been a lot of underhand dealings even if they're not illegal dealings i think they wanted to see that happen so even if afterwards there wasn't any legal um any legal recrimination against the spfl it would have made it very open to everyone that this is a bunch of people not fit for a purpose but instead yeah i guess we'll never know the, see the issue here is that morals don't come into it in a court of law it's, no. it's by the book now the way that the the constitution of the scottish professional football league is is written up and their voting structures um, commensurate to that is not good it's not good for change um, but it, it is pretty tight as far as what's happened is concerned to, to try and overturn that. The one thing I do think is that the no compensation aspect, I thought we'd get something. I didn't know what we'd get. But I know we wouldn't get, as I say, you reach for the stars and if you hit the sky, then you've done all right. So I thought we'd get something. Why didn't we get anything? Well, um, the the transcription of, of the meetings and, and the... Uh, the, the, the five days that were spent um, with lawyers going back and forward at the arbitration committee will come out in, in due course. Um, the problem being, if Hearts were to get any sort of compensation and partic thistle, for me, there would have to be some sort of admission of guilt. And they've not got anything. And they're probably going to be end up having to pay the, the legal fees um, and all costs from both the court session um, and also the uh, the SPFL, sorry, the SFA um, arbitration um, meeting as well. So I think if you if you were to award them something, then that may have opened the door. Mm-hmm. And I know I think it's Article 99 said oh, this is a there's only one other little small thing. Um, it's done and dusted now. But had they given Hearts some sort of compensation, I think there might have been a little uh, a little glimmer of hope that. Hearts may then take it somewhere else because they know that the admittance has been of some sort of guilt, hence the compensation. That's why I don't think we've got any. Uh, and I think it sucks. So the second time Hearts will be dropping down to the championship, although slightly different circumstances in the last um, six years or so. Anne Budge ended her statement on this with uh, the messages of support that I personally have received throughout this enormously difficult period have been absolutely amazing. Let me say thank you to each and every one of you. I'm sorry we did not win this battle, but as we all know, it is winning the war that counts. Now, Tony, when uh, Hearts last went down, um, obviously after going into administration, funnily enough, it was a certain Robbie Nielsen who got placed in charge, there was a real solidarity about things. You know, we hadn't, we'd gone down with through complete fault of our own as a club at that point, Um but there was still that feeling we'd been kicked a little bit, we'd been taking the slagging a little bit, and a feeling of bouncing back, and everyone was really together. Is it going to be a similar sort of feeling, do you think, this coming campaign? I think it is, yeah. Definitely, there's a siege mentality around Taps, arguably mm-hmm. more so now than there was, bizarrely, six years ago, um, because I think there was probably an element of we fucked up as a club sort of thing maybe six years ago, yeah. and we deserved to go down. Whereas now, I think 90%, probably 95%, arguably 100% of Hearts supporters would say this is not fair. Admittedly, Hearts were awful for 80% of the season, 75% of the season before it was 
uh, called to halt. But I think there's a general feeling among the heart sport that they have been shafted here and that they need mm-hmm. to get back up and sort of prove a point, stick two fingers up at everybody. The only thing that might count against that is depending when fans are allowed back in the stadium because that obviously, I mean, if Hearts have a, had a full house time castle against Dundee, it would make a whole difference in terms of the vibe around the stadium. Whereas yeah. an empty time castle, I don't know what it's going to be like in October, but an empty time castle is obviously a completely different proposition in terms of a siege mentality having any effect on a match day. Yeah, definitely. It'll be interesting to see what number of fans will be allowed in, if there are any. I think I think there's a good chance of there being some if things continue to improve, but we just don't know. Obviously, it's one of these kind of unknown elements to, to all this planning that's, that's happening just now. Uh, how are Laurie, you feeling? Sorry, one, I, I just want to mention something yep. um, while you're talking about that. Last Monday, uh, I went to a game over here in the States, um, between Hartford Athletic and, and Loudoun United. Um, USL, third tier, it's my local team. First time I'd been to the stadium. But it was also the first time um, in North America that soccer, football, had been allowed with supporters. Um, in Connecticut here right now, we have the best, out of all 50 states, we, we have the, the best set of figures, numbers, uh, and how we've reacted to it. So the government, or the, governing, uh, the governor of the state of Connecticut, uh, allowed up to 25% of capacity. Now, that meant every second row of seats was not in use. And like a, a, a one of the chess pieces where you move two in front and one to the side, you couldn't have people sitting directly in front. Um, but you were able to sit as a family. Um, and the other seats were, were kind of taped off. Um, you had to wear a mask at all time. There were stewards to enforce that. But it never felt as though... You were kind of restricted or anything like that. It felt like you were back at a game and a lot of eyes were on that because you've got the Major League Baseball right now that's that's struggling with no fans. They're not in a bubble. Um, This was a team coming from out of state to play against Hartford and it was was fine. No problem whatsoever. The players, before they went down the tunnel at halftime, had to go to the benches, their respective benches, and pick up their own masks. And it, it was fine. You never felt as though, oh, I don't want to do this. You were just happy to be back there. And I think people can learn from that. And, and no doubt people will speak about various other sporting events once they start getting fans back. I think the Irish, there's an Irish game over the next few days um, that's going to have some fans back as well. It's just slowly, and it can be done. The problem is, if, Hearts have got 8,000 season ticket holders, over 8,000 now. They've got a capacity of 20,000. 25% is 5,000. So, so what happens? How do you choose? Uh, is it first come, first served? Or how do you choose if it's only 25% of capacity? Uh, and I'm not saying it will be in Scotland. Hopefully they, they do it slightly different. But if you've got more season tickets than seats available in a reduced capacity, how do you how do you do that? I guess I'd have to do a rotation maybe. If you, get, if you don't get the first game, you get the second game and so on. You keep the first batch, get the first game. Second batch, get the second game. And then it goes back to the I don't know, depending on numbers, they could do it that way. I suppose it might be more of an issue for somebody like Celtic, who yeah. obviously got 50,000 that they've got to keep happy. If they can only accommodate, I don't know, twelve or 13,000, that could become a bit of a headache for them. OK, well, let's move on to um, times when hearts weren't awful for 75-80% of a season. Uh, Tony, who's writing a book, Reminiscing with Legends, 
has been, I guess, looking back at this in, in detail and speaking to people. And um, I'm going to go back and I'm going to look over some elements and you can let me know some of the things that have come up without giving too much away, um, Mr. Brown. And I suppose a lot of the focus reminiscing with Legends is going to be around a Hearts legend who has returned to Tynecastle, Mr. Jim Jeffries, who originally became Hearts manager back in August 1995. Now, before we get go back in time too much, uh, what was your reaction to the news that he'd returned to Hearts in, in this role that he'll be supporting Ann Budge and supporting Robbie Nielsen? I think it's a great decision by Hearts. I actually tweeted just after, I think it was just after I'd spoken to him, um, maybe about two months ago. I tweeted something to the effect of uh, Hearts could do a lot worse than bring him back in some sort of role. And then, uh, what was it, three or four weeks ago, he was back. I mean, mm-hmm. to me, it's a no-brainer. Uh, the first the first time I really thought about it was actually um, Gary McKay, obviously a columnist at Even News, had suggested, I can't remember when it was, maybe about two years ago, that um, it might have been after Cathro left, or maybe it was, uh, it, it was a year or two ago anyway, Gary mm-hmm. McKay suggested that um, Anne Budge should be looking to get Jim Jeffries in in some sort of advisor role on the board because he obviously felt that Craig Levine had too much power and she needed some sort of uh, person with football acumen, if you like. Yeah. Um, and at that point, obviously, Jim was at Edinburgh City, but to me, it's a no-brainer to get him in. He's, even if he's not been involved in management for since when was it? Was it Dunfermline five or six years ago? Aye, Dunfermline, I mean, and then. Edinburgh City in his director football role for the last two years before this. He's he's see when you speak to him, he's just got this natural football wisdom where you could I think you could give him any football problem and he would come up with the right solution if you know what I mean. I, I don't know. Yeah. You could say as a I don't know what sort of problems football managers have to deal with behind the scenes, but he seems like the sort of guy that would just deal with everything with common sense and logic, mm-hmm. and he he just simplifies everything. He, he talks about it in absolute clear terms. Just very good at explaining things and why he made certain decisions. And it all some of it's stuff that you maybe wouldn't even think yourself. Is, but then when you break it down, it's just such a simple idea. And you think, oh, that totally makes sense. I can see yeah. why he did that. I can't think of a specific example, but he's just a fascinating guy to listen to. I mean, he can, he can talk and talk and talk and he goes off on tangents about different things about football, but it's all stuff worth listening to. Yeah, and I, I think try editing them. <laughs> <laughs> so if if we go back to that time, so I mean August '95, he he came in, and um, before we you know, talk to some of '97, '98. So it's I mean his first two seasons, you know, finishing fourth in both seasons, getting to a cup final in both those seasons from what had been a a difficult time for Hearts before that. Uh, I mean, what did he do? You know, what was your opinion on what he done from speaking to him and researching this book that kind of started Hearts along this course towards, obviously, the success that would come a couple of years after? I think it was it was a pretty ruthless freshening up of the playing squad first and foremost. I mean, he inherited a lot of guys who had been there for a long, long time. Very mm-hmm. good players: John Calhoun, John Robertson. Dave McPherson, Craig Levine, all these guys that had played, I mean, half of them had played through 1986. I mean, that's how long it was that probably a good chunk of that Hearts squad he inherited had, uh, had been at Hearts. And I mean, obviously, these are great players in Hearts sort of modern history, if you like, superb players. But they were getting to the end of the, the line. They hadn't won anything. They were starting to get embroiled in a relegation battle. 
I mean, it had become a bit of a mishmash. There was a lot of players there that you look at and you maybe think they weren't quite heart standard. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's probably most eras of hearts you'd look through and you'd say, and with hindsight, there's a lot of players there that you think they shouldn't be there. They're not quite up to scratch. But there seemed to be a chunk of sort of 1986 guys, a chunk of promising players, you like Sir Kevin Thomas and Alan Johnston and even Stephen Frail, who was still there, but he just got injured. And then you had your sort of Brian Hamilton's, Colin Miller's, George Wright, guys like that. So it was it was a sort of dysfunctional squad in many ways that inherited and they were the club as a whole were in a bit of a state in terms of having battled relegation two years running. And they obviously Jim was in a position where he, he been on a good thing at Falkirk that just finished, I think, fifth in the Premier Division the year before, which is sort of unheard of now for Falkirk. Mm-hmm. And uh, his star was on the rise. I mean, his, his reputation was sky high at that time. And uh, Chris Robinson and Leslie Deans identified him as the man to come in and sort hearts out. And he's uh, came in and pretty, I mean, it wasn't all plain sailing. I mean, it, when you go back through it, there was lots of sort of peaks and troughs in that period. But over the course of that first two years, he definitely, well, he turned them into from relegation candidates to a team that was sort of pushing for Europe in both seasons. So, I mean, he did it pretty methodically, pretty ruthlessly, and just with a general sort of instinct of how it needed to evolve. It wasn't sudden. It was a gradual change, mm-hmm. but he did it. He knew what he was doing from a long way out. It wasn't just whimsical decisions he was making. Do you think he envisaged reaching the point they did in 97-98 when they were realistic title contenders, you know, for, for most of the season? Um, it's the only time, really, in, in my time watching Hearts that they've I, they've been in the title race for pretty much the entire season, because even in 2005-2006, Celtic's lead got ridiculous well before the final quarter. Um, but that season, it was really just the final hurdle that they started to fall. I mean, do you think he, do you think he and Billy Brown really thought that's the level they could get to? Do you know what? It's easy to say with hindsight that because obviously they did get to that level, it's easy to say with hindsight that they always thought that. But see, from speaking to them, I genuinely do think they did think that they could do that at Hearts. I think they. I think Jim, and particularly Jim, I think thought could go in there and do something completely different to what all the other managers before him had been unable to do. I mean, he knew Alex McDonald nearly won the league, but didn't quite. Joe Jordan had gone and finished second, but ultimately fell away and got sacked. Sandy Clark arguably was in a sort of Gary Locke type position. He was in with a relatively young squad and a difficult era and was a young manager at the time. Probably didn't get a fair crack of the whip to do what he really wanted to do. And obviously Tommy McLean was pretty much a disaster in terms of the way it went, in terms of his relationship with the players, the board, and particularly the younger players. And it obviously the league position sort of endorsed that. But I, I think Jim went and believed, he was on an upward curve in management. And I think he thought to be a successful Hearts manager, I need to do something a wee bit exceptional here. Mm-hmm. And I think he would have only signed up for that if he believed he could do it. See, from speaking to him and speaking to the players and the, the bullishness he put in that squad, I genuinely do believe that he thought he could get Hearts to a point where they could win the league at some point. And I guess it's testament to the fact that it was something he was slowly building. It wasn't, you know, 2005-2006 was fantastic and we saw this influx of players suddenly from, from nowhere we were signing, 
you know, Edgaris Jankowskis and Takis Fisas, Rudy Skatchel, the team came together from nowhere. But if you look at the sign-ins for 97-98, there was only really three in the summer. And one was Jose Katongo, who would be a bit part player for a lot of the campaign. And the other was Thomas Flogol, who was a free and actually had a trial at Dundee United just before. And Stefan Adam, who came from Mets, where he'd won the French League Cup. So we've seen so much chopping and changing in Hearts teams, especially in recent years, but it, it was very little. It looked, you know, he's gradually, like you said, phasing out players who were coming to the end, and he just made these little changes. There wasn't much, there wasn't like a big influx of a sudden load of stars in 97-98 that made that team what it was. It was, I guess, gradually built up over the previous two seasons. I think that's what makes 97-98 that bit more special than 05-06. Don't get me wrong, two great teams. And 1985-86 is another great Hearts team in terms of relatively modern, sort of fantastic Hearts teams. But, I mean, for my generation, you would say the 97-98 team and the 05-06 team are complete standouts compared to any other Hearts team because I'm not old enough to remember 86. Um but yeah, that's that's what I think makes ninety seven, ninety eight so special. That it was something that was crafted on a relative shoestring. It wasn't. I mean, obviously, a lot of what happened in 05-06 was because Romanov's money was able to go to bringing in the likes of Fisas and Jankowskis, guys who ordinarily Hearts wouldn't have been able to think about going for. So I mean, that that yeah, it was a, it was a victory for sort of careful management, sensible management, prudent management having an eye for a player where you could go out and get a a player of, I don't know, a European... Pe- well, not that Flogo and Adam were top European players, but they were players who had done it at a reasonable level in decent leagues abroad. They came in and they didn't cost anything, obviously, compared to wage-wise and compared to the likes of Fisas and Skatcho and Jankowskis. Who else came in? Bednar, these sort of guys. It was about 30 came, came in, in overall. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could go through that whole squad and they were all probably on, what, three, four, five times what the 97, 98 guys would have been on. I mean, yeah. Mark will know better than me what these guys were getting paid, but compared to the, the 97, 98 guys, they were all on relatively modest wages. And I mean, consider what the 97, 98 guys were up against as well. They were up against a Rangers side who arguably, fair enough, they were on the wane in terms of it was coming to the end of an era but they were still a Rangers team that had won the previous nine league titles. And you also had a Celtic team. I mean, I speak to Alan Stubbs a lot and he raves about that Celtic team, the spirit they had. And he, he's adamant that that was like a real, they knew they were going to win that league. I mean, I'm not sure Hearts people would have thought that because I think a lot of pe- Hearts people by the end of that season were starting to think they could win the league as well. But I mean, it, it, it wasn't a, a shabby Celtic team and it certainly wasn't a shabby Rangers team that that Hearts team were going toe-to-toe with for... 90% of the league campaign. Sorry, Laurie. If you remember after Stefan Adam signed a new contract, um, he was on a fair bit of cash back then. I think that it was reaching its its kind of plateau back then because if you remember, um, we signed Gordon Petrich. He was on, I think, 11, 12 grand. Craig Burley was offered 13,000 a week by Jim Jeffries to sign for Hearts when they had the, um, the SRH. The SR, I keep saying SRH. The SMG money. SRH was who used to own Radio 4. The SMG money came in, and, and Craig said that himself, but he'd already agreed to sign for Derby in 1999, I think it was. Um, so that was around the time whereby money was being paid that clubs couldn't really afford. I mean, Hearts didn't have a rich benefactor at that stage. And then it, it kind of, we, we hit 
a, a floor. Um, there were big issues. And then Romanov came back in and we ultimately spent money that we didn't have. And the wages for those guys in 0506 were a lot more um, on a whole than, than the 97 98. Uh, because you're not going to get Takis Fisas, a Euro winner with Greece. You're not going to get Edgaris Jankowskis, a Champions League winner, um, to come over um, for four figures a week. So it was the cumulative cost of 0506 that we couldn't afford, ultimately, and, and probably privately at the time we knew that. But we weren't going to let that. It's like the Rangers fans, when, when they had their tax, what is it, tax avoidance? Um, EBT. Yeah, everything like that. Um, they kind of know it's, it's, it's probably... Not right, but you're not complaining about it. Hearts, weren't, Hearts fans weren't going to Tynecastle in 2005 and seeing all these really, really good players and going, oh, well, got to be careful here. It's going to come back and bite us in the bum. You just, you, you ignore it to an extent and, and you hope it'll last forever. And clearly it's got no chance of doing so. You obviously mentioned some of the foreign players that came in. We talked about Flogol, Adam, who's spoken uh, on scarves around the funnel before. So, you know, these players, it's clearly with the likes of Adam, he's still got a real passion for hearts. And what, would, what impression did you get from speaking to some of them about how they found a club like hearts coming in? Because if you're from Austria or you're from France, you're not really going to know much about, let's be honest, a team like hearts in Scotland until you're there. But what, what, what was it that kind of got them so involved and got them so attached to the club? You mean the foreign players specifically? Yeah, so yeah, the likes of Flogo, the likes of Adam, the likes of, and obviously Salvatore, who very sadly died um, three years ago now, before he was even 50. But even when you see the interviews on Russe, of course, as well, after the game and and when they speak about it afterwards, it really meant a lot to them, the success in playing for Hearts. I think the thing that comes through, obviously, as you say, none of them will have really known much about Hearts before they came, but I think... I think all of them were taken aback by the passion of the club, like the supporters. I mean, I think that's a big thing that Hearts have got going for them that people maybe underestimate from out with out with Hearts and out with Scottish football is the passion. These, I mean, the likes of Flogel and Adam had won things in their home countries, but they said it was... I mean, obviously winning the Cup was the thing that sort of made them legends. I mean, we probably wouldn't be speaking about them if they hadn't won the Cup or if they hadn't been part of a team that nearly won the league in 98. Would have, they'd have probably just been bracketed with other foreign players of that sort of period and time, if you like, and you'd maybe speak to them for a throwaway podcast or whatever, or um, or a news, a random newspaper article, but you wouldn't really talk about them in sort of legendary status, if you like. But I mean, I think the fact they won the cup and they got to see those celebrations where there was X amount of thousand people on the streets, I think that obviously made them realise actually this is a pretty big club, albeit not a super club, they're a big club in the context of. Scottish British football in terms of the fan base they've got and I mean it's they just seem to I think the fact also that there was guys like Gary Locke in there and Gary Mackay initially John Robertson that were by all accounts absolutely drumming and Jim Jeffries I mean that's four massive hearts men straight off the bat that these guys are coming into and sharing a dressing room with and they're going to naturally sort of get that feeling of what the club's all about and Back in those days as well, the players used to go out to, I mean, Mark, you'll remember this, the players used to go out to supporters clubs on a Saturday night after the games and stuff like that. So yeah. they had we no had choice. We had ones at Pennycook Hearts, didn't we? Because you and I were were, were both on the Pennycook Hearts bus. That's um, right. Back You're in the day. <laughs> what, what was that? You're outing me now as a jambo. 
Oh, there's plenty more where that. I'm just letting you bed in first. Just get your feet <laughs> under the desk, and then I'll I'll hit you with some stories from the past. Yeah, but sa- Saturday night, it, we had our Player of the Year award, and it wasn't just one. You'd usually get. It depends on how many how many supporters clubs, Heart Supporters Club, had Player of the Year awards. But if your secretary of your supporters club was smart, uh, he or she would kind of find out when the other supporters clubs were to see if there was a spare day where you were the only player of the year award or or you were having your annual get together. So you'd, you'd end up with with three or four players coming. Um, yeah. And it was part. It was something Jim Jeffrey said. He he's like, look, without the supporters, um, you wouldn't have all this. So I don't care what you've got planned. You can go uptown after that on a Saturday night, but make sure that that you go to the supporters' functions. And some of them were so, some of them were so good that the players never ended up going uptown. They just got pissed wherever they were in some random miners' village, um, getting absolutely hammered on one pound fifty points. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the players still seem to keep in touch with Scottish guys who they just became friends with when they were yep. over here, and they still come back and see them, and they go out up the town on a Saturday night and what have you. I mean, it's. I suppose, I mean, you look at the Rangers sort of nine in a row team as well. All those guys, like Loudrup and that, that you would think would be totally, they'd maybe be more um, sort of associated with the foreign clubs they were at. They obviously still have a, an affiliation with Rangers. I think Scottish football, if you're part of a successful team, no matter what you go yeah. on to do elsewhere, you still have that bond with your Scottish club. Even if you go on and play in the English Premier League. I mean, I'm, somebody like John McGinn, for instance, I know he's a Hibs player, but he'll go on and have a successful career down in England, but I bet he's, there's still that affiliation with Hibs in 20 years' time when he comes back because... <laughs> well, Hibs won't let him forget it, certainly. <laughs> but it's, it's that, I don't know, Scottish teams obviously don't pay as much, but what they don't pay in finance, they give you in terms of the experience that you get. If you have a good time at a Scottish club, that I think that sticks with you. For I mean, from speaking to these players, it clearly sticks with them. That's decades down the line, and these guys still love. Stefan Adam sits in his heart stop drinking wine during lockdown. I mean, how, how can uh, it seems odd to us, but it's obviously got under his skin, the club. Lovely flip by Stefan Adam. Now, can he reward himself with a goal? Oh, that's magnificent from Stefan Adam, and just what he deserves. So, 97 98, two defeats in the first three games shortly followed by a League Cup loss to Dunfermline. It wasn't a case of we started with a bang at that point. There was a 3-1 defeat at Ibrox to open the season. Um, obviously, 05-06, it was, it was a steam train right right from the get-go. Was there any concerns? Did you get an impression from speaking to any of the players or Jeffries and Brown that there was any concerns early on that maybe it wouldn't come together like they thought? No, that's the funny thing. Nobody seemed to be... I mean, it's easy to say with hindsight. It's easy to say with hindsight that we all thought it was going to come good. I get that. Stevie Fulton said that he knew they had a good team from pre-season. I mean, when he saw a damn flow goal coming in, he knew they had been... The previous season they had been building and they knew they were getting to a point where, hang on a minute, we've been to two cup finals, we've finished fourth both years running. We've got a right good shot of at least being third, if you like. I mean, they maybe didn't think they were going to challenge for the title. But I think they knew they had a good team. And, I mean, losing at Rangers on the open day isn't the sign of a bad team. But, aye, it was a bit of a chastening night for them in terms of being 2-0 down at half-time. And it, was, it seemed like it was just going to be normal service resumes, as, as in Rangers run away with the league that night. And then they lost, they smashed Aberdeen in the next game. So I yeah, think that gave them enough optimism to sort of offset the defeat at Dunfermline. And even when they got knocked out of the league cup by Dunfermline, they were absolutely brilliant that night. They just couldn't score. They could, Ian Westwater had a great game. 
they just couldn't score. I mean, imagine going out the cup to Dunfermline now, what like the social media would be like if you go out to Dunfermline on a quarter final, Dunfermline away, there'd be a meltdown. I mean, presumably there was some form of meltdown back then, whatever sort of meltdown you would have pre-social media, but it would. I think there was also probably an appreciation that they were generally playing well at the start of the season and it was when Neil McCann scored that goal at Easter Road mm-hmm. I think that's when they started to motor and after that they they really kicked on yeah there was 11 wins from 12 games after the defeat at East End Park in August and obviously propelled Hearts to the top of the table and suddenly made them title contenders was there a general feel now it's easy enough to say you know it was just a good bunch of players what was what was the what was working so well at that point that they just kept winning? They just went on that run. Um, you know yourself, momentum's a massive thing in football. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but teams do get on bandwagons and it starts to run. And when you win a few games, I think initially they weren't hammering teams in the first couple of games. It was like two one wins here and there. They, they won one nil at Hibs. They beat St Johnston away two one. Sort of hard fought win. It wasn't they like a swashbuckling, blow-them-away type performance. Mm-hmm. They beat Dundee United 2-1 at Tynecastle. Stephen Presley scored their own goal that day for Dundee United. Yeah. Up, <laughs> um, so they were like one-goal victories initially, but it was that period at the end of September, start of October, when they smashed Motherwell and Kilmarnock. I think something just took fire, and they just... Uh, everything that they'd been building towards up to that point suddenly sort of came, caught fire and They'd obviously been quite inconsistent in periods in the previous season, even though they had a really good team. They hadn't quite had the consistency to match, like when Neil McCann and Davy Weir came in. They lost a lot of games. And they just couldn't get any momentum that season. They did enough to finish fourth, but it wasn't a convincing season. And they, they obviously had that great performance in the League Cup final, but they couldn't quite get any rhythm going. Whereas I feel like at the start of this season... Um, they managed to get this momentum of winning hard-fought games, if you like, initially, yeah, and yeah. then they started to blow teams away, and they thought, and teams started to fear them. Like they were running over the top of teams for a period, but I suppose, as we all know, the only problem was they couldn't beat the old firm. Yeah, that was that was actually my next point. If if you look at the games against the old firm, in the league anyway, um, four against Celtic, zero wins, two draws, two defeats, and against Rangers, zero wins, one draw, and three defeats. I take it that came up, especially when you're speaking maybe to the likes of, of Jim? It did, yeah. I mean, it, some of them said that was the reason they didn't win the league. The others had different reasons. But, I mean, I mean, it goes without saying, if they had been able to take eight points, what's that, two wins, two draws from their eight games against the old firm, they would have won the league. I know it's easy to say that. It might mm-hmm. have been slightly different had they picked up the odd result here and there. But, I mean, they were... They were seven points away from winning the league, fundamentally. So if they had been able to get a couple of wins against the old firm, the old firm would have had slightly less points. So they would have won the league if they'd been able to beat the old firm. Um, I mean, they just they almost won at Ibrox. Yeah. It's the game where George Albert scored in the 92nd minute. And they went to Celtic Park, put in a really good performance in March. If they'd won that day, they'd have gone top of the league going into April. And they, I mean, it, was, it wasn't a game they should have won. They could have won it. I think it was quite a tight game. Uh, chances, few chances at both ends. But I mean, if they'd just been able to eke out a victory somewhere yeah. against Rangers or Celtic, I think it would have changed everything for them. The Hibs game on uh, on January the first. That was one that sticks in my craw because <laughs> we were two 0 up after ten minutes, and I subsequently went on to to work with Andy Walker, and he remembers that vividly. 
Um, he thought they were in for an absolute doing um, in that first half because they were 2-0 down. They were like rabbits or deer caught in the headlights. But then, I don't know. I mean, I can remember it to an extent. I'd have to watch it back to, to see how the game flow went. Um, but when, when they got their, their, their one back, having kind of stemmed the flow, and Pat McGinley equalised, that, that was the game where you kind of thought, at 2-0 up in 10 minutes, that should have been 3-4-5 and not a dropped point or two points or however many. What was it back then? Was it two for a win or three? Three. Three for a win, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's two points. That one, the Kitongo, I mean, it's easy to self, uh, to, to, to kind of look and, and pick um, certain games and just um, kind of identify matches. Celtic should have beaten us at Tynecastle. Jose Kitongo scored late <laughs> on, but that game at Ibrox was, was a killer because we were we were on course for all three points until Alberts late on, but it was the Hibs one because we'd been through a spell whereby I think it was three without a win, the nil nil at Tanadice, the defeat at Celtic Park when Burley scored late on, and then we got absolutely thumped at home just before Christmas against Rangers, and and to to get a win against Hibs would have on the back of the Dunfermline victory just after Christmas that would have really picked us up again, and we did well to go to St Johnston next time out. Um, and, and to win. And we, we kept our kind of not losing streak going, um, but the, the Rangers won um, at Ibrox at the end of February. That that was a sore one with Alberts late on. Uh, that was, if they'd won that game, that I think they would have, I mean, it's, they still had chances after that, though, because they went yeah. to Tannadice and won and they were still in a really good position. So it, that wasn't a killer for them in the sense of ruling them out of the title race. But I think psychologically, just the fact they couldn't get over the line against Rangers or Celtic was a a bit of a yeah. killer. I mean, the, the Jose Catongo game against Celtic, you know, which Mark mentioned, it's one of those games, I wasn't actually at that, I was watching it on TV, but even when you look at it back and look at the video of it and you hear the noise and you look at the scenes, it was mental at Tynecastle when that oh, went in. And you crazy. see coaches, subs on the pitch. I think Jim Jeffries is trying to scrap with the Celtic bench at that point. Um <laughs> was there any memories of that particular game that came up when you were doing your research for this? Yeah, the players were really good. So there's two of them in particular. Well, Katongo and Neil McCann were really good. I'm not going to give it away, but they were just really good at sort of describing the chaos of that day. It was good, really nice sort of reflective words they used about it. I mean, it, obviously it was. It was a, they broke the dugout, didn't they, that day? <laughs> <laughs> they did. They did. Um, I've, I've got one for you, Tony, and it's not the old firm. It's a game um, that happened middle of March, 21st of March, <laughs> up at Tannadice. Um, why, why am I mentioning a game up at Tannadice, which Hearts won by a goal to nil, Jim Hamilton, after eight minutes? Why would I possibly be mentioning that game to you, Tony? On the back of speaking to young Hunter, I can imagine why you're bringing that one up. <laughs> uh, you know, I was obviously, now that you've outed me, I can say I was in the away end that day as a 15-year-old boy. Um <laughs> Obviously, Hearts was all I did back then. Just home and away, went to watch Hearts. And uh, obviously, that was the greatest season of my life as a Hearts fan anyway. And uh, at that point, I genuinely thought we were going to win the league. I say we, I shouldn't be saying that now when I'm still... <laughs> yes, get in. Come on. I genuinely thought Hearts were going to win the league that day. But anyway, for the game, I'm in my seat nice and early. Obviously, it was the days before you could go to the pub, so didn't drink. Just got in this, got the sporters bus went and got McDonald's and into the stadium so sitting plumb behind the goals where the Hearts players are warming up Jim Hamilton and John Robertson are hitting shots and I've just looked up Jim Hamilton smashed the shot from the edge of the box right off my face <laughs> into my nose burst nose 
blood gushing down me. I've looked over and John Robertson's telling him to go and apologise to me, and Hamilton's just laughing. <laughs> and I'm like, so I, I've walked out to the toilet and I've bumped into Neil Hunter coming in, and he's like, "What the fuck's happened to you?" I'm like, "Hamilton's just hit me with the ball." <laughs> I'm sitting back in there. So yeah, apart from Hearts winning the game and Jim Hamilton scoring the goal, that's my memory of that game. There you go. Jim Hamilton was great, to be honest. I actually really enjoyed speaking to him. He was, I mean, he's one of these guys you don't hear too much from, but he was really good and spoke really well about his time at Hearts. Just whoa, really whoa, whoa. Let's, let's, let's rewind a bit here. We, we had a conversation about Jim Hamilton a few weeks ago, Laurie. Do you remember this one? Yes. Why? The, was it just on TV? He had this weird word, says A. Did he yeah. do that when he was yeah. speaking to you? Well, funnily enough, I said this, I was speaking to Alan Petullo about Jim Hamilton a few months ago before I actually interviewed him. And Alan's a massive Dundee fan and he was wanting to speak to Jim Hamilton. He was asking me what he's like as an interviewee because I'd spoken to Jim a few years back. And uh, I always remembered that at the end of every sentence, he says, says. And I'd said that to Alan. I says, he's got this weird habit of saying says. But when I spoke to him more recently, he didn't say it at all. (laughs) It's like he's grown out of it. He ah. probably he probably heard someone talking about it. He got he uh, actually got fifteen goals that season. It's sometimes he's one of those underappreciated to degree. You know, you talk about Neil McCann, you talk about Cameron, Adam, Flogel. It's maybe not the the cool or the the flash player to often talk about Jim Hamilton, but he got fourteen league goals that campaign. I mean, he was a massive part of of why Hearts you know did as well as they did. He was the top goal scorer. Yeah. Top goal scorer in the country, apart from Negri and Olofsson until March. Um, I'm giving too much away here. I know there's things that you can check out yourself. but <laughs> No, he was... Uh, I mean, the, the guy was flying at that sort of period up till March. And then, obviously, the whole team sort of lost their way a wee bit in the last month or two. Um, but, yeah, no, he was a really important part of that team. I mean, the guys speak really highly of him. He was... He obviously wasn't the most easy on the eye sort of striker. He was a bit sort of cumbersome at times, but... He could win the ball in the air, he could score goals, he was good at linking the play, he could defend. He was a really useful player to have. And he actually, I didn't realise at the time that Hearts actually sold him and got decent money for him to Aberdeen. And obviously his career sort of didn't ever quite hit the heights after he left Hearts. But no, he he really enjoyed his time at Hearts. He absolutely loved it. And he was very complimentary about Hearts and clearly sort of um, had regrets about leaving. Jeffrey's had a he had a tendency to be able to do that, get maybe more out of players than 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 what they do elsewhere. You know, even in a second spell, you know, players like Ryan Stevenson pop in my head when you get someone who's already in his mid twenties and been playing in the lower leagues. But Jeffries can kind of, I guess, turn him into a useful player, even if maybe technically um, they're not the best at that kind of level. Was there a feeling about? You always think Jeffries gets his level of respect from people, and I always think it says a lot when you hear he's one of these managers that I don't know if you found this talk at the players. A lot of them probably still call him Gaffer now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the big thing. You don't hear people speaking badly of Jim Jeffries. Like you, even behind twenty years hindsight, when players could come out and say oh, I hated Jeffries, he was he was this or that. You know what I mean? You get that with a lot of people who come out and say things about Craig Levine that played under him. You don't get that with Jeffries. Nobody comes out and says he was a bad manager, he couldn't motivate me, his tactics were crap, anything like that. You never hear anything. I mean, he just seems like a genuine guy who seems to be able to motivate footballers. I mean, maybe he's not, tactically, he's maybe not the most, um, I don't know, 
imaginative guy in the world, but he's just got a basic instinct for how to win a football match, how to motivate players, how to get them in the right positions, and how to get them operating at their optimum. He just, I mean, they all they all accepted that there were times when he went a bit crazy at them. He gave them a kick up the arse. He was maybe a bit harsh on them here and there. You know, obviously everybody's heard that story about Gary Naismith getting yeah. held up by the scruff of the neck. I don't know. It was hard to pin down whether that story's actually grown arms and legs over the passing of time or if it did actually happen as, as like, so Gary Locke and Neil McCann have relayed it. But, I mean, certainly he, wasn't, he was a guy who wasn't scared to be a wee bit old school in terms of how he dealt with these players, maybe doing things that he wouldn't get away with now, which he acknowledges. But equally, they would run through to borrow a cliche, run through brick walls for the guy. I mean, he, he just seemed to have this, no matter whether it was a young player coming through the ranks, an experienced player who had been there for years, like Dave McPherson, John Robertson, or a foreign guy who had come in from a completely different culture, all of them wanted to play for him. They wanted to please him. He just seemed to have a sort of, I think Billy Brown said it was sort of a Midas touch almost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he just, he, he just, I don't know, he, Maybe there is a lot to be said for just basic man management as opposed to trying to reinvent the wheel. What are those two like then as a pair? JJ and BB. You know, they obviously went went from club to club together, worked very closely and it just seemed to work, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, they'd obviously they'd got together. They'd known each other since childhood. They'd got together in a football capacity at Berwick Rangers in 1988 and they just seemed to have a really sort of perfect blend almost by by their own admission they didn't always agree on things they had occasional fallouts but it never went beyond a disagreement it was never an impersonal where they fell out for days or what have you but I think they Jim liked that Billy would challenge him on certain things he would Billy would tell him if he didn't agree and then Jim would then make his mind up either I'll go with Billy's opinion Jim says that if he wasn't sure on something he would go with Billy's opinion but if he knew in his heart of hearts what he wanted to do, he would listen to Billy's opinion, but he'd go with his own opinion. And uh, I think they just had a real open way of working where they knew exactly where each other stood. They they weren't like, oh, there was no blowing smoke up each other's arse or anything like that. They were very much, um, they, they both had their own opinions about things. Mm. Uh, I think Peter Houston said to me that sometimes they would, Billy would get in a bit of a stew because he wanted certain players on the bench and they couldn't quite agree on who the subs should be and so Peter was almost having to be the mediator to try and decide who the final substitute would be and things like that. So, I mean, it wasn't like Billy was just a yes-man number two sort of thing. You know, you probably get guys who just sit and let the manager dictate everything. Billy certainly, I mean, all the players rave about Billy as well. I think Billy was obviously more prominent on the training pitch in terms of he was the guy that was there every day, whereas... Jim would get involved at times, but he'd maybe take more of a back seat and stand yeah. and observe and whatever. Yeah. But they, they just seem to have a perfect relationship. And I think that's endorsed by the fact that they obviously went on and worked together at Bradford and Kilmarnock after leaving Hearts. So, no, I mean, you don't get many partnerships in Scottish football that last as long as they did so mm-hmm. and have as much sort of relative success at different clubs. So they clearly had something special about them as a pair. Do you think... Uh, just uh, in your opinion, I, you know, I, I think is it something that's maybe missing a lot of the time these days, where you get managers who, you know, you get the token assistants that then rotate, and a new manager comes in, and one of the other coaches is made his assistant, or he just has a few coaches there. Is it maybe something that really is missing from a lot of places where you've got this genuine duo that 
they will have challenges and disagreements and maybe when something isn't working the assistant can actually come in and have some other suggestions and maybe bounce off ideas rather than it just being one man in charge who's making all the calls when things aren't working well it's his say so anyway so he's going to keep doing what he feels like yeah i think i think having a manager and an assistant who have a proper bond is a massive thing and i think more recently i think that was a big factor in why daniel stendel struggled initially when he came in because he came in on his own and who did he have was andy kirkie had in the dugout with him for the first x number of games i mean coming in and uh, this is stendel i'm talking about obviously he's coming in a totally new environment and if he had come in with um the guy Tong and who was his George yeah. Seavers. Yeah. If he had had them from game one, I reckon Hearts would have hit the ground running a lot, or would have had a far better start because he'd had more people to help relay his opinions. I, I think there's a massive amount to be said for having a strong management team as opposed to just having a strong manager, and that's why I'll be interested to see if Robbie Nielsen can. I mean, he looks like he really wants Lee McCulloch, and you would hope, obviously, for Hearts' sake, that he's able to get him in because he obviously values what he can bring to the party. And you mm-hmm. don't want a situation where he's he's just shoehorning somebody in for the sake of it, because it's all he can get if he can't get Lee McCulloch in for any reason. We've talked about the league. We know obviously it didn't work out. Hearts obviously had a, a cracking cup campaign that season, though. But I tell you what, we weren't half fortunate with the draws, were we? <laughs> Clyde Bank, round three. Albion Rovers, round four. Air United, quarter final. All at home. Then Falkirk. <laughs> all at home. Yeah, all at home. And then, then Falkirk. Clyde Bank was, was, it was, it was easy. It was easy. We had a lot of the ball. Thomas Flogel after half an hour. And that, that was fine. Albion Rovers. Albion Rovers ended up easy, but the first half was nil-nil. Um, and then we got a couple of goals in five, five minutes after the hour mark. Um, the Air United one, they brought through a really good travelling support. I remember that one in March. Uh, Paul Ritchie getting us off to a good start. But once Flogo made it two, it wasn't long before they got back into it. Um, and I think it was, I'm sure it was the Ian Ferguson, not the one that scored against Byron, but the tall striker that scored against Hibbs. It was, pulled, yep. Yeah, that pulled one back. And and <laughs> we, we, we had a lot of the ball in that game. But at, at 2-1, you always kind of thought, ooh, but then once Fulton scored, it was it was fine. And then in the semi-final, um, I know we scored earlier. That, I mean, it's been known as the Kevin McAllister semi-final. And they didn't even win the game because uh, Gary Naismith got torn up for for shreds by, by McAllister. I actually watched that game back on, I think it was Amoruso Let's It Run, part of the highlights in that game on his YouTube channel as well. We didn't play well that day, but, but we, we got the job done. And I have to say, when McAllister equalised with five minutes to go to make it 1-1, I wasn't confident. No, they were reliant on Neil McCann, just turned on the afterburners in the last couple of minutes and basically won it for Hearts. He set one up for Adam and scored one himself. But no, that was a a pretty fraught afternoon. You you just wonder, um, Tony, uh, when it went 1-1, if they have regrets, because I think they they chased it. I think they smelt blood when they got the equaliser through McAllister, rather than just kind of seeing if we can get the draw. Because... uh, if it was 98, it would have gone to a replay, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. So they were five minutes away from a replay, but maybe they thought, do we want to take our chances in a replay um, against Hearts, or do we, do we just want to go for it? Now, when Neil McCann scored, they pushed everyone forward. That was the third goal after Stefan had scored in the 89th. Maybe they regret w- what they did, but that was when you kind of thought, okay, 
Okay, the, we, we've had an easy ride so far through. Then Falkirk was a tough game, although we, we should have beaten them, and we did. But then Rangers in the final. Wow. What, what was... Um, I don't want you to obviously give away much from, from what's to come in the book, which isn't obviously finished yet, but what was the overriding feeling you got from speaking to players and management ahead of the Scottish Cup final? You know, Were the players who weren't really involved in Scottish football much before that season or, or recent times. Were they aware of how big that was from a Hearts perspective after so many years without a trophy? I think they were, yeah. I mean, again, it's easy to say with hindsight, but even going back and looking through old newspaper cuttings and things like that, there was a genuine sort of confidence and an understanding of the sort of opportunity, the size of the opportunity that awaited them. The genuine, were Rangers, it was more from Rangers' perspective, they were going into this cup final on a massive downer because they had lost the league and the Scottish Cup final is going to be sort of scant consolation if they can win that after losing out on 10 in a row. Whereas with Hearts, they had had a good period to sort of get out their system that they weren't going to win the league and almost regroup over that month, if you like, leading up to the cup final. And it, by the end of the season, Hibs had been relegated, which sort of created a feel good in the Hearts support. And then you had this, Hearts won the last day of the season against Dunfermline. It was sort of a nice sunny day. Everybody was happy again. There was this buoyancy after all this sort of pressure and depression of losing out in the league. And looking back at the Hearts players were absolutely loaded with belief that week that they were going to win it. I mean, I know it's easy to say because they actually won it. They can say it with hindsight. We knew we were going to win that league. I've looked back at newspaper cuttings and different things from the week, and there's evidence there that the Hearts fans were, the Hearts players absolutely believed they could win it that week. And in terms of the foreign players, I mean, they keep going on about how Jim Jeffries and John Robertson and that and Gary Locke were just ramming home how big a thing this would be if if they could do it. And I think I think they genuinely bought into it. They they, they believed what they were being told, so they they sort of knew being pulled along by these Scottish boys. They knew that this was big, that this was a really big chance to do something pretty spectacular. Tony, do you know what the biggest thing that happened on the 9th of May was? You were speaking about the sunny day at Tyne Castle and Hearts beating Dunfermline by two goals to nil. you know what the biggest thing that happened that day was? From my perspective or from Hearts' perspective? From a Hearts' perspective. What was the biggest thing that happened that day? I I thought you were going to mention Hunter getting lifted after invading the pitch at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what you were uh, going to mention? No, no, no. no, no. He, he was 15 years old, uh, and he just he just decided nobody else went on the pitch when the players were doing their lap of honour. The emotion got the better of him, and he just hopped the boards, ran on the pitch, and got huckled away by a steward. I've been there. I've been there. Have you been lifted, um, Dunstar? Well, no. They took me off the pitch. I mean, they took me off the pitch and put me back over the advertising boards. Um, that was that was the end of the season, maybe o two o three. I ran on. Were you, dra- were you draped in your brelly? No, this, well, that was a few no years that's, that's a few years later. No, I gave my. I ran on. I gave my scarf to bloody Alan Maybury, who would end up playing for Hibs, and he honestly looked terrified. I don't know what he thought he was going to do, but um, I mean, Alan Maybury's obviously quite short, and I'm about six foot, and I was reasonably tall, even though I was a teenager then. And it looked like a, he thought I was going to lamp him or something. I was like, he's like, you shouldn't be on here. I was like, it's fine, Alan. Just <laughs> take my scarf. Um, and then got taken off. But what? Um, sorry, so, so, we, so we what, digress, what was Mark. the biggest thing? No, it's fine. What, <laughs> the, what was the, the ninth of May? From... Yeah. Uh, Derek Holmes scoring his goal. 
Yeah. The thing that John Robertson playing off the striker. Colin Cameron. No. 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 Um, no. I'll tell you what, the biggest thing that happened from a Hearts perspective, it's to do with the cup final, was about an hour up the road at Tannadice with six minutes remaining. Oh, George, yeah. Alberts George Alberts with a red uh, card yeah, yeah. for Rangers. And if he if he picked up two yellows, he would have been fine. He would have missed the first game of the, the league season in 98-99. But because he got sent off for violent conduct, he automatically would miss the next game, which was the Scottish Cup final. So with six minutes to go, I remember that night because... You, you, you don't go into that game and we were at home at Dunfermline thinking oh if Alberts gets sent off but when you get home and you find out Alberts was sent off and you know that the only way he's going to miss the heart scream is for violent conduct and you assume it's probably for two yellows or whatever and then you find it was six to go it was a straight red from Hugh Dallas um, of all people as well and that left Amoruso on free kicks <laughs> in the cup final and that was joyous I thought you were going to say the fact that Cameron um, got rested against Dunfermline, but I just had a, I want to test... Rested or arrested? <laughs> no, that was Hunter, apparently. Cameron was rested, Hunter was arrested. Uh, I was going to ask Tony, so here's a, just a wee bit of trivia that popped in my head just to see how much boring detail you've been looking at. So the game before that was away to Aberdeen, Hearts to 2-2 in the 2nd of May, Colin Cameron went off late to be replaced by a player who would make his one and only appearance for Hearts. Who was it? That is a good question. I t- to be honest, I-, I would never have got it myself, but I just happened to be looking at the game to see if Cameron played the week before that. He was that off- a young player? Yeah, quite young. Um, 21, 89 minutes. Oh, I, I know, uh, Mark Bradley. Yes, indeed. Can't remember him at all. But um, it was Mark so He was on Lynn Lisco Rose manager till recently. Oh, okay. He went on yeah. in the lower leagues. He played for Cowden Beast under Craig Levine, if I remember rightly. The only the only time I can remember Mark Bradley, he was always pictured in the away kit. And it was that wonderful kind of Inter Milan style away kit as well. Um, but he had this fringe that he always used to gel it. But yeah, he, he was at, he was at Lynn Lisco Rose. Um, and that was that was his debut. Wow. Well, there you go. Yep. I'm impressed. I'm impressed you got that because I have to say I would never have got it. So, Tony, we've talked a bit about the about 97, 98, and you know, I say we don't want you to give away too much um, of your content you've been working so hard on. But um, I probably should have probably should have ordered that a bit better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, why will why would people get? excited about um, the book. What, what what can we expect? Well, I think um, if anybody who's interested in late 90s hearts, I think it's going to be, without blowing my own trumpet, I think it's the best thing I've ever written of what I've done so far. I'm massively proud of what I've done. I'm not usually one to sort of go down that road, but I'm just considering how difficult it was to put together and pull it all together and all the different uh, little nuggets I've been able to unearth. So I think it's going to be, it's not going to be sensational. It's not going to be full of like player X, shag player, player Y's wife and things like that. Oh, it's going to be whoa. just <laughs> little brilliant little nuggets of information that you either didn't know or you'd completely forgotten ever happened. It's just, I, I genuinely thought that I knew 90% of this just off the top of my head of what happened in that period because I went to watch Hearts back then. See when you dig down into it, I mean, there's just so many little nuggets that 
they're, they're not massively important in the grand scheme, but they just help create a picture of what Hearts under Jim Jeffries in that period were all about and what it was like being in or around Hearts. It just sort of, I think it just encapsulates a sort of magical period and any Hearts supporter who hadn't seen them in the 1950s that, that they've never really experienced before in terms of having a team that they could genuinely feel were going to win the league or could win the league and who actually went and did something significant and won a cup. It's, um, I mean, the, some of the, the players have made it. Without the players, it wouldn't have been the same without all the people I've spoken to around about. I mean, I'm just the narrator, basically. It's actually the, all the different players and the way they've expressed how they feel about different things and their own little, just some of the little memories, are just just little humorous anecdotes and things like that. They, I mean, they just, I think they'll endear, if these guys are already legends in the eyes of supporters, but I think just reading what they've got to say will just further emphasise why they're held in such high regard by the supporters. I mean, they, every single one of them, even guys who you don't maybe think of as Hearts men, like Davy Weir, for instance, he obviously went and had probably his best years at other clubs, like say Everton and Rangers, you can still tell he loves Hearts and or he, he appreciated his time at Hearts. And Neil McCann was another one. He was absolutely fantastic to talk to. Just absolutely loved his time at Hearts. And you could just feel how much it meant to them. Even though Neil McCann went away and made loads of money playing for Rangers in Southampton, he was a Hearts man. He still goes to watch Hearts now. He's not. I'm not saying he's a Hearts supporter as such, but he's a guy that just loves Hearts as a club. He appreciates what they did for him. And it, it's just... Really nice stories. I mean, the guy who's... I'm quite a guy that, like, when I write something, I've always got doubts about, is this going to hit the mark? Is it really what we're looking for? And the guy who's helping me edit it is a... He's a guy that works for the Scotsman, and he's an an Aberdeen fan. Obviously, there's a lot of heavy Aberdeen defeats in this, but he's absolutely (laughs) loving it. He's, like, keep sending me the next chapter. He's basically going through it, fact-checking, and he's a really shrewd operator. He's, He's flagging up any errors I've got, and he's... You just bang on in terms of um, just exactly what you'd want in terms of somebody to keep you right. And uh, he, I wrote one of the chapters there yesterday and he's come back raving about it, saying this is brilliant. And that's an Aberdeen fan. So I think if an Aberdeen fan's getting excited by it, then I would hope that Hearts fans are going to really enjoy it as well. I think if any Hearts fans feeling a bit down about how the how things are going for the club, how things are for Scottish football at the moment, then I think this will... I don't say so myself. I think this will be a really nice sort of pick-me-up at Christmas time or hopefully from Hart's perspective they're flying high at the first at the top of the championship come Christmas and it's just another sort of a nice sort of winter read if you like just to sort of relive the glory days. So I mean it's certainly something I would read if I knew I could access this via somebody else if you know what I mean. I know that sounds a bit big-headed but if I can't sell it who else is going to sell it? <laughs> I thought you were going to oh, lead with. Luck. I thought you were going to lead with. Uh, this is definitely the best Hearts book ever written. Just to see what Mark Donaldson <laughs> has to say about that. <laughs> and I've not been swearing of late. No, Mike Aitken's 1985-86 glorious Hearts book was the best Hearts book ever written. <laughs> Mike Aitken features in the book. He's got a few words. What a guy! Super guy. So, so yeah, when is it available that. then, Tony? It's available in. A release date will be November the 1st, although it could well be out before then, but I just don't want to overpromise and um, and there's any issues. So we're saying November the 1st, but if anybody pre-orders and it's in before then, it will be dispatched late October. Um, in terms of pre-order, 
we're hoping to be able to launch that start of next week, ideally on Monday, although it's just a case of getting the front cover signed off before we launch the pre-order. And it's going right. to be... Go ahead, Mark. No, you, it's going to be... I've, I've got something to add to this. I'll, I'll let you finish it's, and then I'm going to say... It's going to be online only, so the link to purchase it will be published via my Twitter account, which is at Anthony Brown. And there's also a Facebook page called Reminiscing with Legends. Um, so you can go and follow that and share it, like it, whatever you do with Facebook pages. And all the details will be put out via that and via my own personal Twitter account. So at the moment, that's going to be the only outlet, the online store. It's only going to be hardback and paperback at the moment. There's no plans for Kindle just yet, but that could become something further down the line. But I, th- I think this is the sort of thing, if I was a, I would be more inclined to buy the hard copy just as a keepsake. That That's another reason that I think it will be, I want it to be for the players as well, where the players can look back and say, oh, what did he think about me? Oh, it's great to see how he thought about this. Do you know what I mean? Because I know they still keep in touch, but just where they've got some sort of hard copy, almost like an album of that great time they had together and just how, because it, it was a really close-knit group as well. That came through and speaking to them all and writing it. I mean, I think they'll they'll all appreciate reading what each other had to say about them. You know what players are like. They like to see their mates talking them up and stuff like that. So, I think that that was another thing that I was keen to make sure uh, that it was something that the players would be really happy to have and just as a keepsake of how it all came together. A couple of things. One, it's coming out before Christmas. Please don't say, oh, it's a perfect stocking filler because there's no stocking that can fit a hardback book. No one's legs are that big. And and secondly... Do you still have your Terry Venables Umbro jacket that you used to wear to games? <laughs> I can remember that. No comment. I, I don't have the jacket, unfortunately. That would be a collector's item if I still Indeed. had it. Indeed. No. The blue one, light blue Umbro. Yes. Yeah, that's Indeed. a great jacket. Oh, yes. You were never a troublemaker. You you were just a quiet one in the bus. No, it was hard to avoid being a troublemaker, though, when you were going to the games with those guys. So they were... Aye. I really wish that you would just go with a cover, which is just an image of you bloodied with a black eye after Jim <laughs> Hamilton smashed the ball off your face at Tannadice that and, season. And, and call the book says eh. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would do. Uh, um, I should have mentioned that to Jim, actually. I don't think he'd have any recollection of it. But no, that, that, was a, that was a great game for him because his goal was absolutely superb. Yeah, you watched yeah. it back recently? Oh, recently, yeah. but I remember it. Do you know what? Gaza. <laughs> I remember the main thing about I remember that game. I was I was actually the way into that, that day as well. Was um, Jose Katongo scoring and uh, climbing up the stanchion and then realising when he climbed up that the goal was offside. It was disallowed <laughs> for something. <laughs> right. Well. Well. Thanks for that, uh, Tony. I'm really looking forward to it, actually. Um. So uh, keep an eye as. Tony says on his Twitter page, which is at Anthony A. Brown. Um, and yep. on Facebook, you can follow the page if you have Facebook, uh, Reminiscing with Legends, and they'll have updates on the book. And uh, yeah, hopefully when it's out, you know, we'll maybe get you back on and we can relive some of the memories um, when you can talk about it a little bit more and it's all finalised. Yep, absolutely. That'd be great. Great. Well, uh, Mark, do you have anything else to to add to this week's show? 
No, Hunter's only given me the, the stuff about the Terry Venables jacket and the Jim Hamilton bloodying the nose. So uh, I think that I think that's enough. There's no dirt on me, Mark. That's the problem. <laughs> just, that's the problem. Just wait till I title this podcast. Tony is a jambo. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> the coonster will be out. <laughs> Look, I, I don't think it really matters because we've had Craig Fowler on before, and he says that all the comments he gets on articles are accusing him of being a Hibs fan. So yeah, maybe it'll work for you. To be honest, I've, oh, see, this is the first time I've ever sort of publicly gave any indication that I was a Hearts fan. I mean, Hibs fans on Twitter think I'm a staunch jambo and a lot of Hearts fans think I'm a Hibs fan. And I was quite happy with that setup because I thought that probably means I'm doing okay in terms of being neutral. But I mean, every, the bottom line is that you wouldn't be in football right and if you didn't support a team as a boy. So, Did you honestly think you would come on this podcast? And I wouldn't tell everyone that you were on. No, no, and you might go down that road. I just call it Jim Hamilton broke my nose. There we go. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, it's been a pleasure having you on, Tony. Um, Look forward to to reading the book when it's available. Uh, We'll be back next week. And, Mark, do we have anything confirmed about who will be on the next show? Hoping to have Craig Gordon. He should be on over the next few weeks. I just want to check um, if I could say that yet. <laughs> oh, I can't really, but I've just said it. I just, I, I'm, I'm kind of, we're not really doing this the proper way, are we? We're just going to the manager and saying, can you come on? I may bother. We're going to the goalkeeper who's back saying, can you come on? I may bother. What I didn't realise, and it's it's not until I, I, I saw him post something on Instagram this week. It was an on this day when Juho Michaela scored against Barcelona um, <laughs> at Murrayfield. That was Craig Gordon's last game for Hearts. I didn't know that. Great little nugget. Yep. Wouldn't have so he's hopefully, head, no. no, exactly. So uh, we're hoping to get him. It'll, it'll be over the next few weeks. He's a nightmare to pin down, but we're hoping to do something. They're back in training next week. So fingers crossed that we'll get him after they return because yep. that's his preference. So we can talk about we can talk about the training. Um, yeah, and, and I'll let you deal with the, the Hearts PR department because clearly, clearly we're, um, we're we're going rogue and just getting players on. It's fine. It Phil Phil needs me to come back to commentate, so it's it's all right. And look, I mentioned the Robbie Nielsen thing, and he never responded, so I took that as a yes. And like I said last time, Phil, if you happen to listen to this, Craig Gordon's probably coming on, so just make sure it's fine. Um, but what we'll probably do then is. Rather than do homework, we'll maybe do questions for Craig Gordon when we can confirm it. So keep an eye on the Twitter page at Around the Funnel. If you do have any feedback uh, about the show, tweet us or you can email podcast at scarvesaroundthefunnel.co.uk. But until next time, thanks for joining. But I see your truth